Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. We've been walking through a study on the book of Job, asking, where is God in my suffering? And this week, in our third episode, we'll be looking at the long and winding dialogue that takes place between Job and the three friends. However, dialogue is a bit of a soft descriptor. It's more like a rigorous debate. What Job needed was to be comforted. Yet what he finds instead is a heated discussion with friends who poke, prod, and accuse more than they are willing to listen. So this is an episode about why friendships are so hard to rely upon in the midst of suffering. Why it seems that religious people always want to be right rather than to listen to your pain. And why maybe, just maybe in our digital age, what we still need most desperately are friends. The friends Job didn't have friends who can hold our pain before God. As we've been journeying with Job, we've encountered unimaginable grief. I don't know about you, but I'm surprised where this book is about to turn. If the main purpose of Job was to tell a story, we would have been building to Job's suffering right before the climactic third act. Instead, though, Job's suffering has already taken place. It's the foundation the rest of the book will build upon. If the main purpose of Job was to answer our theological question, then Job or the friends or maybe God himself would be about to teach us some great insights almost like one of the Apostle Paul's epistles, preaching a soaring sermon. But the book doesn't go there. Far from it. So here's what I find interesting. Whatever it is you thought you were going to get out of Job, probably the facet you least expect is for a book on suffering to meditate quite a bit on friendship. But this is exactly what Job does. A full 23 of the following 42 chapters are going to slow right down to focus on a discussion that takes place between friends. One commentator will go so far as to say, Job is about friendship, specifically the possibility and disappointment of friendships and suffering. It's like we thought what we needed most in our suffering was answers to our questions. Yet what the book of Job gently tries to point out is that what Job really needs are some good friends to hash out his pain. So where do we find such friends to walk through our suffering with? Okay, so go back with me to the year 2017. In 2017, Mark Zuckerberg was concerned. Facebook had unexpectedly emerged as this major force of political influence in the 2016 elections. After three months of soul-searching, Zuckerberg published an audacious manifesto on the need to build global community and his vision for Facebook's role in that project. In this follow-up speech he would give in June of 2017, Zuckerberg explained that the social-political upheavals of our time, from rampant drug addiction to murderous totalitarian grimness, resulted to a large extent from the disintegration of human communities. He lamented the fact that for decades, this is now a quote from Zuckerberg, Membership in all kinds of groups has declined as much as one quarter. That's a lot of people who now need to find a sense of purpose and support elsewhere. End quote. Zuckerberg promised that Facebook would lead the charge to rebuild these communities and that his engineers would pick up the burden discarded by parish priests. 
His solution was to expansively enhance the group's function in Facebook to facilitate more community. His ultimate goal was to help, and here's another quote, one billion people join meaningful communities. If we can do this, it will not only turn around the whole decline in community membership we've seen for decades, it will start to strengthen our social fabric and bring the world closer together. End quote. This was such an important goal that Zuckerberg vowed to change Facebook's whole mission to take this on. However, it was only a few months after Zuckerberg's announcement that the Cambridge Analytica scandal revealed that the data entrusted to Facebook had actually been harvested by third parties and used to manipulate elections around the world. Investigations from the CIA and FBI found significant evidence of hacking from Russia that was using fake accounts to spread misinformation in support of Donald Trump and other nationalist campaigns. And now, as I'm recording this episode, in July of 2020, it was just announced that Coca-Cola, Starbucks, and several other major companies would be withdrawing advertising support from Facebook in order to pressure them to crack down on hate speech and misinformation. It would seem that Facebook has not yet solved with AI the role formerly occupied by the local priest. Now, it's easy to talk about our need for human community, but it's growing increasingly difficult to find a solution. Think about your own life for a minute. You likely have family and friends that you connect with regularly, but what do those relationships look like when you peer more closely at them? Are they just work friends, family members you're in a group chat with, casual drinks, someone to see a movie with and talk about the latest TV show with, but nothing more? If unexpected tragedy were to surface in your life, how would your friendships respond? Would they send a tweet of support? Would any beyond your closest friends even offer a phone call? Would your closest friends offer a phone call? Let alone doing the hard work of coming over to sit with you as you cry. What we will soon discover is that suffering tests even the closest friendships. It puts immense weight on the friend to sustain, often either resulting in the friend being crushed by our grief or the friend desperately trying to pull us out of our pain. Even the closest friendships cultivated in real life can only sustain this kind of pressure for so long, let alone friendships propped up by our digital age. If we were to invite the Book of Job to speak to our contemporary dilemma, it would be quick to point out the far more important question is not where you find your friends, but who those friends actually are when suffering appears in your life. The friends you've chosen and the wisdom they have to offer will become incredibly important in either consoling you or aggravating your grief. The setup in Job is going to be straightforward. In chapter 2, we were told three friends had arrived to offer Job comfort. Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. All three men are also from lands to the east of Israel. And it's likely understood by the ancient audience that these are three great and wise men, sages, if you will, the wisest from their land, who have come to Job not only to offer their consolation, but to each take turns speaking the wisdom that they have to offer. So if you were listening to the book of Job read aloud, you'd have this growing sense of anticipation. What wisdom are these three friends going to say? How are they going to help Job move on? We expect that they will likely have soaring insights like the book of Proverbs, or maybe they'll have that grounded counsel like the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Instead, however, what we discover is that these three friends all share a similar theological vision of reality. The more Job resists it, the more heated the conversation is going to become, until before we know it, we find ourselves caught up in the middle of a heated courtroom debate, contesting the very vision of God, justice, human suffering, and reality. I think this picture is especially helpful if you're going to be courageous enough to follow along with our study available on the website and attempt to work through the dense poetry of these dialogues. It's far less a calm chat and more a heated debate taking place in a courtroom with God on trial. There's this old story passed along by various rabbis that in 1945, the Jews that had somehow survived the horrors of the concentration camp decided that God would need to be put on trial. They assembled some of the rabbis to act as his defense and others to stand in as the prosecution. As the story goes, when the rabbis tell it, the evidence was overwhelming that God was guilty for human suffering. But unfortunately, they realized, after offering the verdict, that there was no judge to uphold the sentence. I mean, this is the gravity of what's taking place between Job and the three friends. This is the weight of what's being contested. It's reality itself. It's God, it's justice, and it's human suffering. For the complex conversation happening, the structure of the debates is actually quite easy to follow. What you're going to find is that a friend will always speak first. In just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to each of these friends, but the basic flow of their strategy is to place the blame on Job. They will start a prosecution of sorts. In the beginning, they almost seem to be offering a nice plea bargain. Job, just repent and God will restore all to you. But as the conversation goes on and Job's defense grows more and more heated, they're going to grow more and more condemnatory. Job, you better repent, otherwise God is going to spite you down on the spot. Job, on the other hand, will always respond after a friend speaks. He begins on the defensive. This will go on for three rounds. Each time after a friend speaks, Job offers a defense to their points. However, as this debate goes on, Job grows more and more certain that he is in fact innocent in the cause of his suffering. In fact, as he grows more clear about his innocence, he will start to ponder that perhaps it is actually God who should be on trial, not him. In fact, Job will begin to say to these friends, I think God should answer for what he's done. This will, of course, only agitate the friends more. By the third round of the debate, after each friend has spoken twice, and they're now on the third round, Job is pretty much done hearing the words of the friends. Eliaphaz will speak, and Job will cut him down one last time. Bildad will go to speak, but Job interrupts him. Zophar is never even given a chance. The debate will end in chapter 27 with the realization that Job has not accepted the prosecution or defense of the friends, and now he wants to take his case directly to God. Okay, so who are these friends, and what is the case that they're proposing? The first friend is named Eliaphaz. Eliaphaz goes first because he's likely the oldest and considered the wisest or greatest among the friends. Over the years, various thinkers have associated each friend with different strands of thought, and Eliaphaz is sometimes connected with history because he repeatedly refers to tradition. 
However, when I read Eliphaz, I connect him more to this picture of a pastoral counselor. He's kind of that wise, wrinkled, sagely pastor who invites you into his office when you've lost a loved one to talk to you about your suffering. Eliphaz's first speech is going to start off sincere. He speaks these sympathetic words of understanding, nodding his head to Job, as if to emphasize that he knows Job's pain. Yet soon enough, like a pastoral counselor who has offered the same advice a hundred times, Eliaphaz is going to keep returning to these tried and tested visions and altruisms of tradition that have proven his case over and over and over. He's going to say things like, God is good and can't be trusted. Job, you're lowly and you just need to understand your place. At one point, Eliaphaz is going to say, Job, if I was in your shoes, I would just confess my sins and repent before God. After all, God will restore whoever trusts in him. Over and over, Eliaphaz will attempt to be the voice that's steadying Job by offering him sound and true pastoral advice. Yet, much like a pastoral counselor, over and over, Job is going to insist that he hasn't actually heard the specifics of what Job is saying. And the more Job rattles Eliaphaz, the more forceful Eliaphaz's advice is going to be. Until eventually, Eliaphaz is condemning Job. Job, if you go on with this case, you will be condemned by God. So that's Eliaphaz. And as you're reading his speeches, notice those tried and true sayings that maybe seem sincere, but sound like they've been said one too many times. So, next comes Bildad. Bildad is all cool, calm logic. He's sometimes been associated with science, though when I read him, I more picture an analytic professor. To Job's impassioned words, Bildad will offer a calculated case, pointing to data and evidence to illustrate his points. For Bildad, if someone could just offer Job better evidence, he's just working from bad data, then maybe Job would come to see that his view of reality is wrong. Bildad is going to walk Job through these cases saying, look, man, you're just not getting all of the evidence is pointing towards the way the world simply works. But every time Job will resist him and finally Bildad too will fall silent. Finally, there's Zophar. Zophar has been said to represent religion, though that seems too cut and paste to me as well, since all three clearly defend God. However, when you read those two speeches of Zophar, because remember his last one gets cut off, one gets the sense that Zophar out of the three really is the overly confident theologian. Zophar is constantly going to be coming out swinging, offering these bold, sweeping declarations about the way that it is. He'll go so far to claim to know clearly what God would say if God were here on the case. He is certain there is no hope for Job unless Job repents. So Zophar is like the one who's going to tell you the dogmas, who's going to pull out the systematic theology and confidently tell you all that you need to know about the way God and the world works. If any friend has ever told you what the right belief is for your situation of suffering, then you too have encountered a Zophar. So if those are the friends, Eliaphaz, the pastoral counselor, 
Bildad the analytic professor, and Zophar the confident theologian, what is their case? Their case, I think, is going to follow three points of logic, and they're going to hone and hound this case tirelessly against Job. Now, surprisingly, as you read through these three friends, they're really all saying the same thing. It's like they're offering up the conventional points of wisdom that everyone would know in Job's day if only Job slowed down enough to think it all through. So what is their case? Here's the first point they're going to make. God is removed from suffering. That's their first argument. God is removed. Job is in pain. He's cried out his questions. He wonders where God is. He wonders why God would allow this to happen to him. He even has dared to speak his questions to God, hoping for some comfort or answer. Yet the friends consistently respond, God is distinct from humanity. He's not to be involved in the mess and mire of Job's swirling emotions. The mistake of Job, the friends claim, is that he presumes through his integrity he could have access to God. Yet all three friends are clear. Job thinks far too much of himself and his suffering. God is very clearly removed from humanity. So let me give you three statements from each of the friends. The first one's from Eliaphaz, and this comes in Job 15, 15. Eliaphaz says, Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. Even the heavens are not pure in his sight. Whoa! <laughs> Eliaphaz is pushing Job away from God, making it very clear God would never put his confidence or trust in his holy ones, for even the heavens are not pure in God's sight. Here's a statement from Bildad. This comes in Job 25, 4-6. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Again, just this distance, space, and separation that Bildad is pushing Job away from God. How can anyone be in the right before a God who is so removed from humanity? Here's a third statement by Zophar. And this comes from Job 11, 7-8. Can you find out the deep things of God, Job? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? So this is the picture they're all painting. God is high and removed. Job's suffering is of no use to understand or access God. If anything, all the volatility of Job's pain is only proving why God should keep his distance from humanity. That's the first point. God is removed. Here's the second point the friends will make. God is retributive. Their logic on this is pretty clear. The God of their system is consistent and reliable. If you are wicked, eventually you will be punished. If you are righteous, eventually you will be rewarded. Therefore, if you are suffering, it is because you've done something that deserves discipline. If you are righteous, you will humble yourself, repent, and eventually you will be restored. Game, set, match, the system follows its flow without hiccup or flaw. So again, I've got a statement from each friend. This one's from Eliaphaz in Job 5, 17-18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. 
Again, this is the pastoral counselor, and yet, as I read those words from Eliaphaz, I can't help but cringe inside. I mean, Job has just lost his children, and yet Eliaphaz calls it an act of reproval by God. In fact, why would Job ever despise the discipline of the Almighty? You catch here that theological vision that says all suffering is simply a way for God to make us stronger. So that's Eliaphaz. What about Bildad? This one comes from Job 8, 3-6. Bildad will say, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Now, I can almost imagine Bildad thinking to himself, that was a real word of comfort I just offered, Job. If you're pure and upright, then God is going to restore you. You'll be fine. But did you catch in his speech that he suggests if Job's children had sinned against God, then God was simply punishing Job's children for their sins? I mean, is that how you respond to someone who has lost their family? Maybe the children are the ones to blame for these transgressions. But there it is. This is the system of retribution that's clear-cut. It's unavoidable. The friends have to hold up this case. All right, here's finally Zophar, coming from Job 11.6. He'll say this to Job. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Man, that might go down as the worst possible response to a friend who is suffering. But you can see here how the friends are getting tired of Job's defenses. Zophar is going to go so far as to suggest to Job that God has exacted of him even less than his guilt deserves. Now, what sounds nice in theory about retribution, that God just punishes the wicked when they do wrong and God is rewarding the righteous when they do right, is difficult to maintain in the real world of suffering. If God is retributive, then Job must be being punished. If God is retributive, then Job's children must have been killed to somehow discipline Job. I mean, what you start to realize when you sit with this system, though, is that if God is retributive, then ultimately God can be controlled, can't he? For if Job would simply repent according to the friends, then over and over again they assure him God will have to restore Job. Perhaps this tips the hand as to why the friends long and defend so ardently a retributive world, a world in which God can be relied upon for consistent blessings, even as we can be assured of our righteousness when we avoid the punishments of those other wicked people. Perhaps this is what the friends are longing for. Perhaps this is what they're nervous to concede to Job. If a world of suffering disrupts God's retribution, then maybe God can't actually be controlled. This leads to the final point in the friends' case. It's very clear to them that thirdly, Job is in the wrong. It all makes sense. If God is removed and God is retributive, then Job's suffering must mean that he's in the wrong. So Eliaphaz is going to say quite clearly in Job 15, 14, 
What is man that he can be pure? Or what is he that is born of woman who can be righteous? For life is, it's not even Job's fault. Humanity itself is to blame. There's no way anyone, even the most righteous Job, could make such an exceptional claim on a removed and retributive God. It's not Job's fault that he's at fault. All he needs now is to repent to make things right. So, in Eliaphaz's final speech, he'll summarize what all three friends have essentially been urging. He says in Job 22, 21-23, Job, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents. The friends have been relentless. They've hounded Job with a rigid system that's attempted to pin him down in repentance. They've used the full weight of their religion to pressure Job into aligning with their vision of God. So you might be wondering at this point, how does Job respond? Does his piety require him to accept their lofty ideas of his own lowliness? We would think that after we left him in chapter 3, where Job was low, enraged, and despairing of life, that he would respond to the friends as a beaten man. Yet something different happens. The more the friends push, the more Job resists them. At first, Job is going to wish that God would simply appear, if only to crush him and end his miserable state. He'll say this in response to Eliaphaz's first speech, and this is from Job 6, 8-10. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Yet, even in Job's pain, there's this strength growing in him. He knows that he's not in the wrong. And not being in the wrong makes him bold enough to wish that God would draw near, if only to crush him. But as Job ponders God's appearing, he starts to wonder, what if he could make his case to God? What if God himself could be summoned to the court of the friends? Job's going to say this in Job 10, 2-3. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? This kind of response from Job will only irritate and then enrage the friends. How dare Job presume on God in this way? How dare he arrogantly assume God would appear, let alone that God would listen to him, lowly Job? Yet Job will not be deterred. This is coming from Job 12, 2-3. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Isn't that a great statement from Job? I love that he pushes back. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. And yet Job says, I have understanding as well. I am not inferior to you. Job's courage here amazes me. How many times have you been tempted to just nod in a strained agreement with a friend who says something strange? How many times have you agreed to just simply go along with something a friend is saying? Yet Job here stands his ground. He knows his worth. He knows where he stands before God. He has the courage of conviction. 
Yet as the friends are going to keep hounding his case in court, there is a pain that emerges beneath Job's words. This is going to be in Job's next speech, Job 16, 2-5. I'll say this to them, almost in anguish. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If I were in your place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. The case of these friends has been relentless. Their arguments at times have been personal and intense. And yet, doesn't this happen? Suffering erupts into conflict, and suddenly you're debating what you did to deserve it, as well as defending yourself from theological assault, when all you really needed was a comforter. This is Job's plea to the friends. Did they not see? What he needed was a comforter. Anyone can critique another's pain. It takes sacrifice to simply be there, to actually listen, perhaps even to hold your critiques at bay. This is the great tragedy of Job. When comfort was needed, Job got answers instead. When friendship was needed, Job got theology instead. Why is it that religious people seem to have the hardest time holding pain? Because here's the thing. We know the friend system is wrong. When you lay it all out, no sincere Christian would tell you that the friends have it in the right. God doesn't work that way. Life isn't black and white. Yet I have found the very same Christians who would disagree with the system of the friends will in times of suffering find themselves drawn to statements that sound an awful lot like the friends. Statements like, Yes, I know you're in suffering now, but are you sure God doesn't have a lesson here for you? Or statements like, Yes, I know you're suffering now, but are you sure God isn't working some hidden good here? Or finally, Yes, I know you're suffering now, but you know, if you just trust God through this, maybe even repent, then I'm sure God will provide for all your needs. On some level, we are the friends when it comes to suffering. We all struggle with the same retributive thinking. Our natural instinct is to gravitate towards a retributive world. When a friend is suffering, we feel this pressure, but also this need to try to solve it, to give them back a system that can make sense. It's funny to see the same instinct welling up in Mark Zuckerberg as community is falling apart. Maybe Facebook is the answer when in fact Facebook is causing just as many of the problems as the ones who think they can fix it. We are the friends who can assume that we can fix our other friend's suffering if only we offer the right retributive equation for the sufferer to believe. But this is why it's so important for us to read this debate. Because Job and the mess of human suffering will resist such easy oversimplifications. God cannot be controlled. The answer is not always repentance. And pious language, even offered sincerely, can leave lasting harm on the sufferer. God is going to say as much at the end of the book of Job, when he'll declare in chapter 42 to all three friends, what you said was in the wrong and my anger burns against you. 
Yet if the failure of the friends was their inability to simply be friends instead of defenders of the faith, the brilliance of Job is his refusal to cave to the pressure of their case. For as foolhardy and misguided as the system of the friends is, something powerful is taking place in Job. It's through the rigors of this debate that slowly Job is going to get clearer and clearer on his true need. He sensed this whole proceeding in the courtroom, that he has a good case. He knows that the very essence of God's character is at stake in the cries of injustice that have come from his lips. And yet for all the pain of his suffering and all of his disappointment with his friends, Job has started to increasingly sense his true need to summon God and have God himself appear. This is from Job 23, 3-6. Job will say, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? This passage reveals that the thought of God appearing terrifies Job in a way that the friends do not. Yet isn't this the profound insight of Job's faith? Is his problem truly with these friends? For all their babble, they only claim to represent God. Job knows if anyone is to blame, and yet if anyone could offer comfort, it surely must be God. As Job considers such an appearing, he'll say this later on in Job 23, 16-18. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. I love this passage. After all the friends have said, all the ways they've pushed and prodded Job, all the force of their claims, Job will resolutely look them in the eyes and say, I am not silenced because of the darkness. He continues to press his case. This is the model I believe we have in the book of Job that I want to extend to you. It's the model of courageous speech in the face of over-spiritualized opposition, where one insists on pressing their case of suffering before God. This is what's so incredible about the book of Job. We thought when we suffered, we simply needed answers. Or maybe we thought when we suffered, we simply needed to return to our previous statements of faith. But instead, what each of us gets are friends who are going to sit on the ash heap with us. We maybe assumed all our friends would be trustworthy, but Job instead offers a clear-eyed warning. Friends have a tendency in suffering to want to defend God, or more honestly, defend their own conception of God, than they often want to listen. Conversations often break down into conflicted visions of reality, where friends are more often blowing windy words rather than truly offering comfort that the sufferer craves. Yet Job beckons us on. He models to us what it means to resist the pressure of over-spiritualizing pain. He shows us our need for an encounter with God far more than our need for our friends to understand. What if, in the midst of darkness, even though it terrifies us, we would continue to speak our case and call for God to appear. Each week, if you've been following along, 
There's been a free companion study to encourage you to return to the Word and spend time in these texts. You can find it on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. This stretch is a lot of chapters in the conversation between Job and the friends, and it may take you some time, but it will be worth it. At the end of the study, there is a practice, an exercise, that invites you to journey with Job. The exercise this week is one in which you will directly confront the voices of friends who have spoken to you in your pain. You'll be asked to reflect on which voices that have spoken to you sound a lot like Eliaphaz, the pastoral counselor, a lot like Bildad, the analytical professor, or Zophar, the overly confident theologians. You then will have space to follow the courage of Job and pen the protest of your case pointing you to a far deeper need to encounter God. I pray that if you particularly have experienced the tragedy of religious friends who have attempted to control the way you see God, that this exercise would offer you the dignity of Job, who, like you, was not silenced by the darkness. However, I want to end this episode where we began. If it was hard enough to find friends who cared to comfort in Job's time, It's harder still in a world where many of our relationships have drifted online. Sherry Turkle is a professor of sociology and technology over at MIT. And as she's been studying the societal effects of the move to online identities, she summarized all of her research in this book titled Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. She observes that there's actually this seduction for each of us to rely on means like texting, email, and messaging for a connection that actually is, in reality, making our relationships more shallow and more alone. One of her great lines notes, When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then, easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. But otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. And with constant connection comes new anxieties of disconnection. End quote. The friends of Job have been substituted for many of us by the friends we count online. The abundance of online friends, however, leaves us more and more abandoned and alone. For all of Mark Zuckerberg's dreams, Facebook is not the solution to our suffering. What we've always needed, what Job most deeply needed, was friends to walk with through the darkness of suffering. Ones who will sit with us in the silence. Ones who will listen to our laments. Friends who can hold the outrage of our pain. Who can bear the intensity of our questioning. Friends who will listen more than answer. I can't help but wonder. Surely Job would still have needed to have his face-to-face encounter with God in the whirlwind, even if the friends had been there as comforters. But I can't help but wonder if the friends had been able to comfort Job rather than correct him. Is it possible that they would have had the dignity of standing there with Job when the whirlwind came? In many ways, this is what the book of Job is actually all about. It's about the friendships we need to forge our way through suffering. It's about the disappointment so many of us have found in friends who couldn't hold our pain. And yet the book of Job beckons us on. Don't give up on real friendships. They will be necessary. Indeed, they will be essential. 
if you are going to navigate the suffering this world brings you. Don't give up on friends, but find true friends, the friends that Job could not, who will hold your pain with you. So when the pressures come to cave to other systems of God, may you continue to speak. May you not be silenced by the darkness. And may you find the friends that Job could not, who will actually come alongside you to lift you up and help you speak. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. And until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.